Now, I want to encourage you, um, in your Bibles, Mark chapter 9, if you don't have your Bible with you, listen, you have got to have a Bible in front of you. So if you don't have your Bible with you, just grab one in front of the pew. They're the English Standard Version. That's the version I preach out of, um, and you can follow along. So this is the final, seri- final sermon in the Summer in the Sun series, our, our um, walk through the Gospel of Mark. I've loved it. I have learned so much. I hope it's been challenging to you. The goal has been simple. I just want us to see Jesus a little more clearly and love him a little more dearly. And I hope that that's been the result for you. And um, if it is, then great. Then I am very happy. And if it isn't, then I pray for you to have all sorts of calamity. So if you've got your Bible with you, that was a joke, then I'm going to be uh, walking right through this passage so you can follow it along. In the Vatican Gallery, I know most of us, I'm sure, have been there, hangs Raphael's last painting. It's called The Transfiguration. And it's, it's so brilliant because it really is a snapshot of three different levels. And in the top, you can see it. The top has Jesus and Moses and Elijah. And underneath Jesus, Moses, and Elijah are the three disciples on the ground looking up. But below them, and we're going to be looking at that today. This is the scene we'll be looking at today. Below them are the nine disciples surrounded by a crowd, and in that crowd are two other groups, a father and a demon-possessed son, and a group of scribes that are attacking them, attacking the disciples. This is what makes the painting so famous and so brilliant, that it, in one snapshot captures three multi-layered concurrent events, kind of concurrent, and I'll explain that in a little bit. Last week, we saw a brief glimpse that top, the top two scenes. We're at the top of the mountain, Mount Hermon, likely, 9,200 feet up, beautiful, up in the stratosphere, clear air. And we see Jesus who transfigures before them. Remember, that word means his external form changed to show what he looks internally like. His eternal glory came in all of its brilliance. And Moses and Elijah joined them. And Moses and Elijah, they're Jewish heroes. And Jesus had changed into his glory before them. And then in the midst of this, the Father, the Heavenly Father, booms out. And this voice says, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. It's a command. It's a rebuke, actually. It's a rebuke to the three disciples. Listen to him. Don't just hear what he's saying. Hear what he's saying. Bring it in and act on it in obedience. That's what that Greek word listen means. And friends, it's really not difficult to imagine this. If we were there, we would be the same. The disciples are face down on the ground, terrified out of their senses. I mean, go back to the Old Testament. You're in Exodus, right? And they're on Mount Sinai. They've camped at the base of Mount Sinai. And God, this cloud of glory, comes to the top of Mount Sinai. And thunder is shaking 
the mountain. It's inferred clearly that when God spoke, it shook the mountain. Now listen, you're an Israelite, one of the two million, and you're begging Moses, please, Moses, you go up on the mountain. You go speak with God. We can't handle this. We'll die. It's frightening. The cosmic divine power and the thundering booming voice of God. And if that's not enough, you've got the cloud of glory and there's flashes of lightning, the brilliant display of God's presence. And they are frightened. Well, it's a repeat of that on on the mountain transfiguration. We looked at it last week and they're frightened out of their senses. You would be too. I would be. I don't know if it happened like this, but I've camped I've camped in a mountainous region in the middle of a thunderstorm, and I've heard it reverberate around like stereophonic sound around the ridge, and I've heard it echo diminishingly quieter until the thundering just drifts away. And I can only imagine, this is probably what's happening. Peter, James, and John, this powerful voice booms. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And echoing away on the ridge top of that mountain, finally into the vacuum of silence. And Peter, James, and John finally begin to peek upward. And what do they see? One person, Jesus And friends, the message is unmistakably clear. Moses is dead. Elijah is gone. But Jesus remains. He's eternal. Don't bring anybody to anybody else. Your only hope is Jesus. Bring them to Jesus. That's the message. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Well, just like Moses who came down off of Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, and just like Elijah who came off of Mount Carmel, both of them having experienced incredible displays of God's power, they come down off the mountain right back into the valley that is beset by the ravages of sin. Jezebel's threatening Elijah to kill him. The Israelites are already worshiping a false god. Well, just like those two, those three disciples along with Jesus, they come down off that mountain in our text. We're going to skip the conversation they had coming down. We're going to go right to verse 14. And here's what we read. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. Now, this is really interesting because, listen, every single word matters in Scripture. They're all particularly important. And Mark says that they weren't even yet with the disciples when they saw what was happening. They saw the scribes arguing. You know, you've seen on CNN and Fox News flash riots or or mob riots. You've seen the tension. You've seen the pointing fingers and the red faces and the restraining of one another. It's obvious what's happening. And this is a great crowd. If you just take the word crowd in the Greek, you've got hundreds of people, but you add on the compound of great, and now you're looking, friends, honestly, get this around your head because this is so fascinating. You're looking at least at hundreds of people, more than likely thousands. I mean, they're coming off the mountain, having seen the glory of Christ, and they're walking right back down into the valley of sin and hostility, and conflict. Thousands of people. And tempers were flaring. The scribes were on full assault. The disciples were huddled together on defense. Why? Well, let's look in this in just a little bit because I'm about to bring us into the story. 
This is kind of interesting to look at. You see, the scribes had been attacking Jesus for a while. And guess what? He proved unassailable. They couldn't find a foothold to bring him down. There were no chinks in his armor. Listen, when we, when we, when we put men into leadership on the elder and deacon board, we're looking for men that have no foothold for the devil. Because the devil loves those footholds. You know, when you're climbing a mountain, you grab hold of them and they can support your weight and bring you up. Well, the devil uses footholds to bring people down. Jesus had no foothold. The scribes could find no weakness. They couldn't find anything. So here's what the scribes did. And by the way, here's where we come in because this is classic strategy of our enemy. They go after the disciples of Jesus. You know why they do that? The scribes had a pretty often repeated saying. Here it is. The one sent by a man is the man himself. Let me interpret that for you. The ones commissioned always represent the one who commissioned. You see, if the scribes can, can bring down the disciples, if the scribes can humiliate these nine men, then they could bring down the reputation of Jesus in these thousands of people all around him. And guess what? Jesus, Satan's trying to do that with you, brothers and sisters, and me. He loves to bring you down. Because you're a Christian and you bear the name of Christ. You're a little Christ. That's what the word means. You bear the name of Christ, the name that is above all other names. His name is upon you. One day in eternal glory, his name will be written on you. But his name is upon you. And if he can, read, if he can bring you down into sin, then guess what? It brings down the name of Christ. Let me explain that. Remember the fourth commandment? Remember Ten Commandments, the fourth one, and when they came, or, or rather, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. You remember what that means? We went through that. It means that the name represents the character of the person. And when we thoughtlessly abuse God's name, when we invoke his name thoughtlessly and we demean it and we bring it to the level of the common and the, and, and the secular, we empty it of its distinction and its meaning, then we are bringing that name into vanity, into emptiness. We're reducing it. And when we who bear the name of Christ live in a way where the world says, that's what a Christian looks like, then you're bringing down the reputation of God to the common and the secular. This is what Satan wants. He wants us to bring down the reputation of Jesus Christ. And so you've got the scribes that are attacking and they're, they're arguing and they're debating with the disciples because the scribes' friends are on an all-out blitz. They're the enemies of Jesus. And they've got their audience. And guess what? The scribes are doing what they were trained and especially talented to do. Do you know that the scribes are Jewish lawyers? Listen, I'm not meaning to make that a pot shot at the scribes. That's literally what they were. You see, they took the law of God. They interpreted it. They built fences around it. 
And then they taught it to the people. And the people literally hung on every word that came out of a scribe's mouth. Their authority was so great that if you ever came to a scribe and you came to one who was a rabbi, a master teacher, and you said, Rabbi, I want to become your disciple, then that scribe would say to you, are you ready to give me the allegiance that is due to your parents? In other words, if you wanted to be the disciple of a rabbi, you had to honor them above your own parents. That was a rule. And they were used to this attention. They were used to this authority. They were used to being above everyone. And here comes Jesus, who is taking the attention from them. They teach unlike, Jesus taught unlike the scribes. His authority was in himself. The scribes always quoted some other rabbi. Jesus didn't quote another rabbi. He quoted his own words from the Old Testament. And what's ironic about this, here you've got hundreds, likely thousands of people. You've got the disciples, nine of them, and you've got a group of scribes who are attacking them. And in their midst is a father who has a child who is suffering demon possession. And you see nothing, you hear nothing from the scribes of any concern, any effort, any attempt to help the ones suffering. All they want to do is bring down the disciples to bring down Jesus. And that's what our enemy does. He doesn't care about your suffering. In fact, if he can, he's bringing it to you. He's always done this. Don't you remember Job? Don't you remember Job? Job was someone who came, who, whom God said about him, he's the most righteous man in the land, and Satan said, wow, that means opportunity, God, to bring down your reputation. And he brought suffering after suffering to Job. And all the while, Job almost slipped. Chapter 32, it looks like he's about to. God steps in and shores up his faith. Satan was successful with Adam and Eve. He's done this all through Scripture. He's done this all through, all, all through human history. He wants to bring us down so that he can bring down Jesus. And he's especially gifted to do it. And here they are, they're coming up to this crowd, Jesus and the three disciples, verse 15. They're approaching them and all the crowd, that word all means every one of them, no exceptions. When they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. Greatly amazed is an expression similar to rabid fans at a rock concert. It means utterly astonished. And once one of them glimpsed them and they began to spread the word, all of them broke away from the scribes, you know they probably didn't like that, and ran right straight to Jesus. Greatly amazed. Well, if you read the Amplified Version of the New Testament, it tells you because his face was glowing with glory, the manuscript copies we have don't say that. More than likely, his face wasn't glowing, in my opinion, because on the way down from the mountain, what's he tell the disciples? What happened on the mountain stays in the mountain. Don't tell anybody what happened up here until after I am risen from the dead. Jesus doesn't want that information out. I think why they were so greatly amazed is because Jesus, friends, is just flat out simply and incredibly the son of the living God. He is God. 
He is God. And when the Holy Spirit opens your eyes while you're reading the scripture, opens your eyes when you're hearing a sermon, opens your eyes through a song or an experience, your heart responds in great amazement. I think the Holy Spirit was at work. But they all ran to him. It was celebrity status that he so diligently and consistently sought to avoid. And they all ran to him in verse 16. Look at what it says. He asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Well, if you have a KJV or an NK, the new KJV, then it says he asked the scribes. All the modern translations don't say that. It just says he asked them. We don't really know who he's asking. If it's the disciples, they're not saying a word. Friends, they're, they're humiliated. You'll read why in a minute. They're humiliated. They weren't saying anything. If it's the scribes, they didn't want to say anything. They're too smart to say anything. They want to wait for Jesus to speak, Jesus to act, so that they can trap him and find something to accuse him about. Somebody finally spoke up, verse 17. Teacher, I brought my son to you. Well, it's the father. For he has a spirit, that means a demon. He has a demon that makes him mute. This demon shut off the larynx. The boy could not even speak. You know, it's so easy. And I am so guilty of this as well. It's so easy to read these stories antiseptically, scrubbed, scrubbed of meaning and emotion. But I can't let you do that. So dads, look at me. Fathers, look at me. This is a dad. This is his boy. Luke says it's his only child. All of a sudden, the gospel ought to be reverberating in your mind. There's another father who had an only begotten son who suffered horribly on the cross. Come on, put the gospel as a filter in your mind. Read this through that. But dads, this is, a, this is a father. And his son is suffering. His son is suffering terribly. He has a demon in him. And it's his only child. And he has brought his son to Jesus. But listen, Jesus wasn't there. Jesus is on the mountain. And I'm sure he asked the disciples, when's he coming back? We don't know. He never told us. He had all this hope and he brings his child to Jesus and Jesus isn't there. And here comes Jesus. You ever lost hope and had it resurge in your heart? Now you know what the father's feeling. You know, the Jews had a fairly well-developed theology on demonic warfare. They believed that seven and a half million demons were in existence. All right. Seven and a half million and they were all bent on feverish destruction. Now listen, I'm going to apply this a little deeply, more deeply. And they especially and particularly were trying to destroy children. That's what the Jews believed. And they had some treatments for this. One of the treatments, you'd have to pay for it. They would tell you, they'd even give you the ingredients. They would give you a noxious foul-smelling root, and you would put it up the nose of the one demon-possessed, thinking that the odor itself would drive the demon out. Oh, well, that's a simple one, and more than likely, it's not going to work. They had the extreme one. It's on the other end of the spectrum. Here it is. And we know this is true because they've recovered skulls. They have holes bored into them. 
Because they believed if you drill a hole into the side of the demon-possessed person, it would allow the demon to escape. And listen, we know some of them lived, not probably many. Some of them lived because they've recovered skulls with holes in it that have bone growth around them. And your bones don't grow when you're dead. That's extreme. And here's what they do. They would bore out that disc of bone from your skull and then they would take it and they would drill a hole in it and then they would put it around the person's neck because they believed that if you could manage to drive the demon out, it was extremely likely that the demon would find a way to come back in and probably bring some of his companions with him. So they had a fairly well-developed theology of demonic warfare, but it was highly ineffective. It wasn't... Very pleasant, to be sure, and almost always fatal. And then around 340 A.D., the Christian church developed this sect called the Order of the Exorcists. And in this order, they created these elaborate incantations, these spells and these magical rites. And all of these spells and all of these incantations and rites were all predicated, all built on the effort to find and discover, to trick the demon into revealing its name. And if you get its name, then you develop the mastery over the demon. That's what they believed. And there would have been no more difficult demon to exercise than a demon that very, very deliberately struck its victim mute because there's no way to discover its name. This would have been an incredibly difficult case. And it was a cruel and it was a horribly cruel demon. Look in verse 18. Here's the symptoms. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And if you take Matthew, Mark and Luke, all three of them that talk about this, you take them together. Here's the sketch of the boy's life. The demon would seize the boy. The boy would scream. It would throw him to the ground. The boy would be to foam at the mouth and you're thinking epilepsy but there's more symptoms his body would get stiff as a board and the boy would become deaf and mute and repeatedly the demon would try to kill the boy by throwing him into a fire or water it was so bad that luke the doctor writes about this he says the demon shatters him meaning a word that was used for mauling and crushing Literally, Luke says, this boy, the father saying to Jesus, my boy is being mauled and crushed and shattered by this demon. Now, dads, dads, this is your boy. This is your only child. Your entire family reduces to this child. And in your child's life, He's being crushed to death. This is a very evocative story. It's very imagery. It's prone. It's very powerful emotionally. So let's take a break for a second. Let's breathe. Let's get our bearings. You get out in the woods. You get a little bit disoriented. Just stop. Get your compass headings. Let's do that for a second, all right? Let me do that with you. If you've been here for the last couple weeks in this series, you'll recall that starting with the blind man, the only time that Jesus ever healed in the Gospels in two stages, starting with the blind man, 
whom Jesus took. Now listen, this is important. Don't let your mind wander. You got to get this. Jesus took the blind man along with his disciples. And listen, he walked away from the crowd. Do you remember why? Listen, Act 1 was done. And Act 1 had a title in its program called Public Ministry to the Masses. See, Jesus' public ministry to the Galileans, the whole area of Galilee where he did most of his ministry, it was done. The curtain had dropped. He pulled the blind man away because he's no longer ministering to the masses. Act 2 had started. The curtain had come up. The program reads, Private Ministry with the Disciples. And you see in the blind man, he heals him and he lays his hands. He spits at him in his eyes and he asks the blind man, what do you see? And the blind man said, I see men that look like trees waving around. He could see something, but he couldn't see clearly. And all of a sudden, right after this miracle is done, Peter says, when Jesus asks, who do you think I am? Who are they saying that I am? And Jesus says, I know who you are. I get it. I can finally see. You're the Messiah. You're the Savior. You're the one promised to us you're going to rescue us here's what jesus does this is act two language he says now you see finally now i can teach you the whole gospel because i'm about to suffer for you i'm about to be rejected and i'm about to be killed and i'm going to be risen back to life and peter takes jesus away from the disciples privately our english word is rebuke the greek word means he forbade jesus to talk about death peter says stop that's not my understanding of the messiah that's not what you're supposed to be doing jesus and peter all of a sudden is echoing i can see trees i can see the gospel but i can't see it clearly You see, Peter's got faith like a sail that has holes all through it, and it cannot quite catch the full breadth of the gospel. I grew up in a podunk town up in Deerider, New York, central New York. It was not uncommon to come up on a stop sign that had been blasted with shotgun pellets. Now, I didn't say that I did it. If you're listening and perceptive, neither did I deny it, but I did not do it. And that's our faith. Friends, listen, sometimes our faith, you can see daylight behind it because there's all these holes in it. Yeah, we've got faith. We do believe Jesus is a Savior. But man, I don't know how to reconcile this event in my life. This is the disciples. Now, let me give you a little clue, and then we're going to dig it out. Do you remember Jesus went on the mountain? And left nine of them there by themselves? That's a little glimpse of what's to come in about three and a half months. Because he's about to die and return to his father. And they will be on their own. Yes, he will be laboring with them from heaven. They will no longer have him with them. And they failed miserably. He is shoring them up. And let's watch it happen. Verse 19. Let's go a little bit before that. The father says to Jesus, I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. Imagine that moment. Now, listen, I asked you to be the father for a second. Now I want you to be a disciple. You've got 
likely thousands of people around you. Now listen, this, this father comes, right? I got all this crowd and you got these scribes. So the pressure's up a little bit because you know they don't like you. You know they're trying to find something wrong with you, trying to find a fault. And all of a sudden this father comes and he says, I've got, a, I got my boy, my only child, and he's got a demon. Can you do anything for him? Where's Jesus? Well, I don't know, but he, he, he's not here, but he'll be back sometime. Well, can you do something for him? Well, what's his problem? He's got a demon. Well, we could do that. Man, Mark 6, we cast all sorts of demons out. Bring him over. Not a problem. Father brings the demon-possessed child over first. I can imagine that the text infers all of them tried. They. First one goes, maybe it's Philip. Maybe it's Thomas who has a doubting problem. Lots of holes in his sail. Maybe Thomas says, bring him over. I'll, go f- I'll-, I'll take care of this. Does what he did before. Nothing happens. The next disciple goes, the next disciple goes, humiliation is growing, pressure's mounting until all nine of them try and all nine of them fail and they are utterly humiliated and a debate raises from the scribes bringing them down and the perception of the people trying to reduce the the reputation of Jesus and this father says, I asked your disciples, they were not able, in other words, why don't you just say it loud and clear, they failed. John, and Jesus says in verse 19, he answers them, likely them as the disciples. He says, oh, faithless generation. And I know the first word of those three is one letter, and it's seriously under and anticlimactic. I know that. But this word has a world of meaning. It is a word used to capture the deepest of emotions. Our word would be heartbroken. Do you hear that? Listen, Jesus was heartbroken at the failure of his disciples. Do you really think that our disobedience, our lack of faith, and our failure really doesn't affect Jesus? He grieves when we don't trust. He is heartbroken Oh, faithless generation. And all of a sudden we hear the reverberations of Isaiah 5, 4, when God says of Israel, here calling her his vineyard, what more was there to do for my Israel, my vineyard, that I have not done it. I've done everything, God says, for you to have faith in me, for you to obey me, for you to trust me, to love me, to worship me. And yet you fail. And this is lamenting from God. God laments over faithless children. Now, parents, listen, you know this. You know this. You know how you feel when your children are irresponsible. You know how you feel when they choose to disobey. And it's the way God feels as well. And he asks two rhetorical questions. How long am I to be with you? And here's that little whisper. I'm not here much longer. And you got holes in your faith. And we need to shore them up. How long am I to bear with you? Now, friends, you heard what I just said about God grieving over our faithlessness. Now, listen, don't leave here without hearing this. Jesus is so patient with us. 
He is the author and perfecter of our faith. Can I just reduce that to the simplest terms? He's the one that lights the spark and blows on it. And he was the one that adds tinder until it's a roaring flame. And he's the one that knows how to patch those sails. And you know what he does? He doesn't even really patch them. He gives you new material. It's called the renewing of your mind, Romans 12, 2. And he says, bring the boy to me. Bring him to me. And I want you to underline, italicize, bold, put everything you can around that word me. Bring it to where it needs to be as the most pinnacle of the three words. Bring him to me because guess what, disciples? Classroom is open. Get in your chairs. I've got to teach you again because you forgot the lesson. Here's lesson number one. Bring him to me because this is why you failed. You didn't do it. Bring him to me, he says. Moses is gone. Elijah's gone. I remain. I'm the only hope. I'm the one that has the power. And you forgot all about that. So bring him to me and let's see what we could do. And they brought the boy to him. Now watch this. Verse 20. And when the spirit saw him, the demon saw him immediately. It convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. The demon explodes in destructive anger. Now, listen, you've got to infer this from the text. Jesus took the father and he took the disciples, you'll see it even more clearly in a minute, and drew them away from the crowd and away from his son. He finds out what had happened. He says, bring the boy to me. They bring him. The demon sees Jesus, flies into a rage, and all of this convulsing, all of this rolling on the ground, you got to get the irony. Jesus starts having a conversation with the father. you got to overhear the child convulsing, shrieking, rolling, slamming its head on the ground. And Jesus looks at the father and says, how long has this been happening to him? What would you do, dad? I'd be like, who cares? Who cares? Can you make it stop? Look what it's doing. Now, listen, there's a reason for this. Jesus never does anything without a purpose. He's doing something. He's actually doing three things. He's teaching his disciples. He's drawing forth the faith of the Father. And he's watching the crowd react because all of a sudden they're seeing the commotion. And in a minute, you'll see him start running over. See, this is about the suffering of the Father more than anything. It's about fanning into flame his weak and faltering faith. Let me explain. Verse 22, here's the Father's answer from childhood. Now, friends, I'm going to shock you. You're going to be startled. I think you should be. That, That word childhood means infancy. From infancy. How long has this demon been possessing your boy from infancy. Listen, I know our minds are modernized. I understand that. We struggle with demonic stuff. I I get that. This is the truth. And I get parents sometimes in extreme cases with their children, and they'll come to me, and and I'll ask them. I'll ask them, how long have these symptoms been occurring? How long have... You've been struggling with this pattern of behavior. And sometimes, rarely, but sometimes they'll tell me, he came out of the womb like this. And if you're going to be a wise 
child of God, then you don't so easily dismiss demonic warfare. From infancy, and look what he says, and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. Now, dads, look at me again. We're back into the shoes of the father. And let me tell you what Palestine was like. See, every time they cooked a meal, they had to start a fire. Every time they warmed water for a bath, they started a fire. Every time they heated their home, they started a fire. Fires dotted the landscape of Israel. And every time this demon-possessed boy would walk by a fire, the demon would rise up, control the boy, and try to make him leap and fall and have seizures into the fire. And if that wasn't bad enough, you had wells. And wells, if you're thinking in your mind, these beautifully brick-enclosed, shingle-roofed, bucket-dangling wells, you're probably not thinking Palestine's wells. More often than not, they were... Stones hewn into limestone rock down into a spring. And they were all over the place. And whenever these pools of water came into their journeys, this demon would rise up and control the boy and try to fling him into the water and drown him. And you're the father. You're the father. And it's been happening all of his life since infancy. You think you're going to let him out of your sight? Do you think you're not suffering along with your son? This is your only son, your only child. Years ago, our daughter, four years old, we lived in a, a townhouse where we, slept, we slept on the second floor. Denise, thank you, Jesus, woke up in the middle of the night hearing some noise down in the garage. It was our little girl sleeping and walking, trying to open up the garage door opener in the middle of winter. She had no idea what she was doing. Denise put her back into bed. Do you know how many sleepless nights my wife had after that? The parents love. And this is your boy and your boy. This demon is trying to kill your boy, trying to crush him, trying to maul him, trying to kill him. It, good, it gives some, some motivation to the father that to say in verse 22, but if you can do anything, please have compassion, not on just my boy, on us, because we're both suffering and help us. And look at what Jesus says in verse 23. If you can, and there's no question mark. This isn't a question. It's an exclamation of surprise. What do you mean? You've got to be kidding me. You came to me. Obviously, you've heard that I've cast demons out. You've come to me and you're wondering if I can. You've got a hole in your sail of your faith. I need to shore that up. And he says, I can do it if you can believe, basically. That's his answer. I can do it if you can believe. Listen, it's not always the case that Jesus requires belief. Don't you remember our second sermon in this series in the synagogue, that demon-possessed man? That man didn't cry out, Jesus, would you please take this demon out of me? He didn't cry out that at all. He had no faith represented at all. And Jesus says, it's going to come out of you because it's your divinely appointed time. It's my will. He doesn't always require faith. And isn't that good, friends, that Jesus doesn't require perfect faith? If he did, none of us, none of us would receive his mercy and grace because none of us have sails without holes in them. We've all are riddled with pockets of unbelief. And Jesus says, I could do it if you could believe in. Look what the Father cries out immediately. 
the father of the child cried out and said, I believe and I love this. Help me. Help my unbelief. In other words, he's saying, Jesus, I'm trying. I'm trying, but I'm so full of doubt. How honest can you get? That's all he wants. Would you just be honest with God? He knows you don't have perfect faith. He knows I don't have perfect faith. The one thing you can do is say, God, I'm struggling. Do you remember Act 1 is done? Public ministry is over. The curtain had dropped. Act 2 is in full swing. Private ministry with the disciples. Look what happens next. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together. Listen, his ministry to the masses in Galilee, it's over. He's not doing this anymore. So before they could get there and be entertained... He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit. I don't care how deaf you are, demon. You're going to hear my words because of the divine words of God. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. Parents, you ever had an angry teen whom you've sent to his or her room and they may have obeyed you, but they slammed the door so hard that the whole house trembles? You ever had that happen? Well, that's what you're seeing right here. The demon has no choice, but he's slamming the door on the way out. And that boy convulsed so hard, probably hitting his head on the ground, that he laid there afterwards, and those that had managed to get there on the scene by this point, all of them, most of them, it said, thought that the kid had died. But not Jesus. Look at verse 27. He took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And Luke adds, he gave him back to his father. Remember that gospel feature, that gospel filter? When Jesus will arise and he will return to the father? You see, if the purpose of, understand, I'm almost done, but if the purpose of this story was just about the father, then it would end. That's, what, that's how Mark writes. If it was just about the father and the demon-possessed son, then the story's over, but it goes on. You see, it's all about the disciples. It's all about the disciples in the classroom setting. The class was in session. And the disciples were in their chairs and the master teacher was teaching, except he teaches a little differently. He's the master teacher. He demonstrates and then he explains it. This is how Jesus teaches. See, he just demonstrated what they should have done, bring the boy to me. He demonstrated it and now they're walking probably to lunch. They enter a home, a, way, a, a place to get some rest and to talk and to teach. And look what it says. The disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? Well, here's your answer. He said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And all of a sudden we go, what? A colossal, anticlimactic failure. What do you mean they couldn't come out because you didn't pray? Come on, Jesus, we need instruction. We need 
action items. We've got the pen and the scroll. We're ready to write them down. And Jesus says, this kind can, cannot come out except by prayer. Okay, well, let's go to Matthew. Maybe Matthew will help us out a little bit because Matthew says in this conversation, this instruction, Jesus says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, by the way, that's the smallest seed the Jews had. If you had even faith that size, you could look at that mountain and say, get up and go, and the mountain would obey. And so we're forced to take Matthew's words of what Jesus says and Mark's words and marry them together. And all of a sudden, we come out with something that is so breathtakingly beautiful. And it's that prayer. It's the language of faith. And if you have a, a strong and deep prayer life, you will have sails of faith that billow out when they catch the Holy Spirit. And you will be so effective in the kingdom of God. If you have a weak prayer life, your holes in your sail will only ruffle when the wind of the Spirit blows. Prayer is the language of faith, friends. Do you see that? Prayer is the acknowledgement that I am weak and have no power in myself, but I know who does. And prayer takes demon-possessed children and puts them right at the feet of Jesus Christ and bypasses yourself. That's the lesson. See, disciples, you've done this before in Mark 6. You thought you knew how to do this. You threw out your familiar bygone mechanisms, your strategies. You forgot that it's not in your power. You forgot it's not in your strategies. It's only in me that anything of the kingdom of God can happen. And you forgot to bring him to me. So let me show you how to do it. Bring the boy to me. And learn your lesson. Pray. Because it's the language of your faith. Now, there's got to be a takeaway. I mean, if we're just done with this and you walk out of here and nothing changes in your life, what a failure of church. There is a takeaway. You ready? You better brace yourself. God already knows your answer. What's your prayer life like? Honestly. And just utter naked admission to God. What is your prayer life like? Is it deep? intimate time that you so relish that you feel out of sorts when you're not in your your heavenly father's presence that a day can't go by without you finding some time 15 20 minutes an hour time to spend just you and god in the language of faith or would you be honest and say you know what i have a paltry anemic weak life of prayer listen friends if you have a weak prayer life you have weak faith you cannot avoid it you have a strong prayer life you will have a strong faith i promise that's the message pray bring people to jesus and let him do what he came to do and spend time in the intimacy of your father and watch the sails of your faith billow out and the kingdom of God rise up and take notice of your life because the Holy Spirit will blow and he will move you where he wants to use you. Lord, thank you for this message. Thank you for 
this story, Lord, a story of a real man, a real boy, a picture of suffering. But looming over that, a story of faithless disciples who forgot the lessons that they had been learned, learning and taught. Lord, thank you for your patience. Thank you that you're not only the author, you're the perfecter of our faith. You never give up. You never leave us or forsake us. You give us new material for the sails of faith, Father. And you blow and you use us and they billow out and we are effective in the kingdom of God. Lord, teach us to pray. Give us the discipline to learn to love our time with you. Because it is the language of faith, and it will remind us that we have no power in ourselves, but we know who does. Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.